You're listening to Inside the Village, where all news is local and no topic is off limits. So help me, Bob, it's bully in the alley. Hey, bully in the alley. So help me, Bob. Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Village. Alongside Michael Friscoletti, editor-in-chief here at Village Media, we call him Frisco. I'm Scott Sexsmith, and of course, Inside the Village is brought to you by True North Mortgage. TrueNorthMortgage.ca, and of course, that's where you'll get great advice and save a ton of cash. You're laughing. Do you not like our our sponsor? Are we working our way up to the mugs, right? Like Derek puts a sticker on, and that's that's today's episode? This is what I like about Derek. There's initiative. Oh, there's no He, doubt. he knew there was a need for logoed swag. Yeah. What does he do? Gets us logoed swag. He puts it on, all right. TrueNorthMortgage.ca. How you doing, pal? Good to see you. I'm doing great, man. We have an awesome. Oh, I can't believe we survived uh, last week. Uh, we had some special guests in from uh, out of town here at Inside the Village HQ, and uh, it was a wild few days. You know what? That was the most fun I've had since I came on here in January. We had uh, all the editors, uh, senior editors and salespeople from around the chain. Uh, we have 18 great local news websites across the province. And uh, I've been working with these fantastic people for months now, but met very few of them in person. Right. So they get to come together and it feels like that old school newsroom where people are there and you really see the talent. And, you know, and I, I know it sounds like I'm just, you know, making stuff up, but I'm not. This is one of those th- one of those moments for me where the light really went on because I'm having a great conversation with these people and realize the talent we have. You know, I work here, but I have to say, I mean, Village Media is the best local journalism going in Canada right now. I mean, we have really talented, dedicated people who serve their communities amazingly. They do fantastic journalism and they're excited about what they do and they want to do more and they want to do better. And uh, it was just great to get to talk to them and and, and have ideas bounced off each everyone's heads and, and just, you know, get get to know each other better. So. You know, the future is bright at Village Media in terms of our journalism. It was really just a great, great week. Yeah, it certainly was. And uh, and you hit the nail on the head. It was great to uh, actually congregate and be in the same room uh, with people, which we haven't been able to do for the last uh, couple of years. Okay, another uh, jam-packed episode of Inside the Village uh, for you this week. And we'll get it going right after this. From newsmakers to celebrities to other prominent guests, you'll find them all on Village Media's new interview series, Up Close and Personal. Join host Scott Sexsmith as he goes one-on-one with well-known Canadians to hear their story. Up Close and Personal. Look for it on your favourite Village Media website across Ontario. Welcome back to Inside the Village, brought to you by True North Mortgage, where you'll get great advice and save a ton of cash. True North Mortgage at truenorthmortgage.ca. Alongside Michael Friscoletti, I'm Scott Sexsmith. Pleased to be joined on the program now by Professor Tammy Friedman, a history professor at Brock University. She's here to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision to strike down Roe v. Wade, a ruling that for nearly 50 years guaranteed a woman's right to get an abortion across the United States. The court has now given individual states the power to outlaw abortion. Professor, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us today. Thank thank you so much for inviting me. Sadly, we had been expecting this ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court after a draft ruling was leaked in May. What was your initial reaction when the draft ruling was first publicized? Well, my first reaction was that although I found the ruling to be very concerning and troubling, it was not a surprise. Um, we've been coming to this point for quite a long time. So uh, for a number of, in a number of ways, um, 
the of course, obviously, the draft ruling told us what was coming. That's that we've gotten now in June. President Trump um, said that he would appoint justices to the Supreme Court who would support the um, overturning of the right to abortion. He did that. He was able to appoint three justices to the court. And that, of course, made a difference in the ruling. But there's also a much longer history leading up to um, the court decision that I think is important to consider as well. Um, Really, ever since the Roe decision came down in 1973, uh, folks on uh, the right have been um, very active in trying to limit access to abortion in a whole variety of ways through legal restrictions at the level of the states, um, additional um, Supreme Court rulings that came down later, one in particular in 1992, restrictions at the state level, including things like uh, waiting periods, requiring extra visits for women um, wanting to um, get an abortion, invasive medical procedures, inaccurate medical information, uh, et cetera. And at this point, we've got more than something like 1,300 different restrictions adopted at this level of the states that really got moving after Roe and have just persisted ever since. In addition, financial access to abortion was also restricted quite early. There's um, uh, a Hyde Amendment uh, that's been in place since 1976-77 that prohibits the use of federal funds um, for women to obtain abortions. And that is still in place after all of these years. And then in addition to all of that legal maneuvering, uh, over the years, we've seen a lot of violence directed at abortion clinics, doctors, staff, patients, Uh, cases of um, people being murdered, firebombings of clinics, and so forth over the years. So that has has also represented a real um, obstacle to uh, women trying to get abortions and also to um, convincing, for example, medical schools and medical students to uh, become abortion providers, uh, realizing that it's a quite risky type of work to do. Um, I would also say, and I can talk a bit more about this, that the campaign to eliminate the right to abortion has been part of a struggle by the American right uh, over generations now that has led us to this point. So in addition to the legal constraints, the violence against clinics, there's a larger strategy that the conservative movement has developed over the years in which uh, economic libertarians who didn't necessarily care that much about moral issues like abortion, but in the 1970s and 80s in particular, strategically pushed for um, these kind of moral, uh, social, uh, cultural, uh, traditional, um, traditionalist sorts of policies in order to attract ordinary Americans and others, particularly people connected with the Catholic Church and to some extent 
uh, evangelicals, fundamentalists, um, to get them on board to push the Republican Party hard to the right and ultimately to gain power at the federal uh, as well as state level. So I think what we're also what we're seeing now also is very much reflection of that long-term political strategy. So I think that's important to understand too. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, uh, Professor, for uh, for such an uh, articulate answer. Uh, if, if I can ask, uh, you know, maybe maybe the simplest of questions, but I'm sure the answer will be anything but. But why is there such great opposition to abortion in the United States? I think this is a really good question. Um, let me say that it has not always been the case, and I think that's really important for us to understand. Until about the mid-19th century, abortion was not a crime um, up until the point where a woman could feel a fetus moving, which was called quickening. Uh, it was widely understood uh, that it was acceptable to uh, abort. And what we see happening then in the mid and late 19th century is this push, particularly by male doctors um, who wanted to drive female midwives and homeopathic practitioners out of this profession that they were kind of creating for themselves. They were um, some of the folks at the forefront in criminalizing abortion. Um, so were uh, kind of social purity uh, activists and others concerned about increasing um, participation of women in the larger society and particularly concerns about declining fertility among middle-class white women. So we see um, this shift by the late 19th century, abortion is criminalized uh, and so is birth control. Uh, that also happened in Canada in the 1890s. In the United States, it happened in the 1870s at the national level. Um, what we see then in the 60s is doctors who are increasingly concerned about not being able to make decisions themselves about health care for women. These are doctors who are telling women that they can't provide abortion services and then seeing them turning up in emergency rooms uh, and realizing that something had to give. Then they're joined in the 60s and 70s by women's movement activists who were really pushing for the right to abortion as part of a larger understanding that women needed to be able to control their fertility if they were going to participate in the larger society in going to school, having access to employment, being able to leave abusive marriages or just live independently um, on an equal basis with men. And I think that that, um, while there are a number of sort of strategic reasons why I think the right saw abortion as a key wedge issue to expand its coalition and gain political power, I also think there's fundamental to that, a sense that women ought not to be able to make independent decisions about their lives. As women have increasingly gained economic independence, many women, of course, haven't, um, but been able to leave abusive marriages, for example, live on their own, pursue their, their dreams, new opportunities, 
that's become a real source of um, discomfort for many people, particularly those associated with the religious right who simply believe that women's access to participation in society ought to be much more limited than it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really it really has changed a great deal over the years. Um, and I think that many people are very uncomfortable with that. And I think it's important to really understand how significant the lack of control over one's fertility is in limiting life choices. Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, I think we have to think about this abortion issue as a question about the role and status of women in society and whether women will be able to exercise choice and independence. Mm-hmm. And that That's a really core, um, core issue. You know, again, uh, Professor, we appreciate that context. I think the vast, vast majority of people are not thinking of all those issues today in the way that you are. And so we appreciate that. You know, you mentioned before we came on that you're actually in the United States right now. You're in Madison, Wisconsin, right? I mean, are you out and about? I mean, what are the what are the, what is the average Joe on the street saying? Is there are there celebrations going on that this that this has been overturned? Well, I think the right to life so called organizations are quite happy about it and are thinking ahead um, to possibly uh, campaigning for a national criminalization of abortion. Um, but Madison is is a fairly progressive. Uh, city politically. There have been a lot of demonstrations across the United States uh, opposing Roe. And also, I think a lot of talk about what kinds of things people can do now to make sure that women, particularly in the states that will really now have bans on abortion, and that'll probably be 26 states, um, how to make sure that those women can get access. Now, Wisconsin happens to be a state in which there is still a law on the books from the mid 19th century that made abortion a crime unless it was to save the mother's life. Uh, That's still there. Mm. So that may very well uh, be in place. It's not totally clear uh, Mm. what will happen, but there are quite a few states that still have these old bans that were never reversed once Roe, uh, once the Roe ruling uh, took place. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a concern. For sure. And as you know, I mean, in Canada, the vast, vast majority of people, the shock is real. I mean, I remember seeing the headline come across my phone when it was overturned and you almost, you lose your breath for a second when you see that that actually happened. And I think a lot of people now are wondering what it means for Canada. And I think we have a few questions about that, Professor, but I guess, first of all, are we going to start seeing now I assume we're going to see more Americans trying to come to Canada for to use abortion clinics, or and maybe some people trying to help fundraise for those people who can't who can't get in their states. What are, what are we going to see on that front? Well, I, this is also I think a really interesting issue. Um, if you look at a map, and there are some really really useful interactive maps out there. One in particular, uh, people can find on the website of an organization called the Guttmacher Institute, um, where you can see exactly what the policies are in every state. So uh, I'm not sure how many um, women will try to get to Canada. If you look at a map, you'll see, for example, that the safest states will be um, states on the West Coast, 
uh, of the United States. In the Midwest, it'll, it's Illinois. Uh, and then in the Northeast, uh, New York, Vermont, uh, and Maine. So it's quite possible that women in states uh, that will have abortion bans will need to get to those states. Uh, and then it might be, though it won't be easy, it might be easier to get to some of those um, states that are safe for abortion uh, than to get to Canada. However, I do think that um, it's very possible uh, that people in Canada will start working with, and this may already be taking place, working with um, uh, pro-choice, pro-abortion organizations or funds uh, in the United States to help facilitate getting women here. There's an organization called the National Network of Abortion Funds that for years now has been raising money to support things like transportation and housing uh, for women who need to travel in order to get an abortion. And of course, the need to travel will increase greatly. I do want to mention, though, now that a big difference from when Roe first was handed down by the Supreme Court in the 70s is that now it's possible to take a medication that will, uh, that will uh, an abortion medication. Uh, and also, particularly during the pandemic, women have had more access to telehealth. Uh, and so in some ways, there, there are some game changers there for women who can get access to abortion medication who might not need to travel. But I do expect that it's really a possibility that um, particularly uh, women in Canada who share the concern that you mentioned um, will want to mobilize to assist uh, women who won't be able to get abortions where they live, uh, which is actually most women now anyway, mm-hmm. because there are there just aren't that many places to go. Mm-hmm. Professor, uh, abortion's been legal in Canada since uh, 1988 when our Supreme Court uh, decided in the Henry Morgenthaler uh, case that criminalized abortion was unconstitutional. But there is no actual law in Canada that enshrines the right to an abortion. Should there be? Uh, my own opinion, uh, I would say yes. Uh, but I would also, um, say that if people are concerned about that issue, they should be looking very carefully at the conservative movement in Canada, whose, um, political goals, I think are, um, similar to, those of their counterparts in the United States. And if they are um, and have been looking at the unfolding of this process in the United States, they can see lessons to draw. So um, if it were possible, I think, to um, get legalization enshrined in Canada in that way, uh, then I think it would certainly make sense for pro-choice people to to campaign for that. Um, But they ought to be looking looking to other uh, strategies as well. Mm-hmm. I, this is another dumb question, Professor, but, you know, we often hear that the prime minister, for example, you know, proclaiming that he will defend the right, women's right to an abortion. And many, many people are saying the same thing. Should we be concerned? Should people in the back of their minds be worried that, man, if this can happen in the United States, that even though we have all 
all, all the rights we have here in the Supreme Court decision in Morgenthaler that we could reach this point in Canada? Should we be worried about that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, after the, the Morgenthaler decision, um, under the uh, Mulroo- Mulrooney government, uh, there was an attempt to um, criminalize abortion uh, that passed the House of Commons and came very close in the Senate. Uh, I'm not sure that Canadians um, know a lot about the attempts at limiting uh, abortion rights in Canada. Um, But in fact, I'll, I'll just note here, many people think that there was a big change in abortion policy in Canada in the late 1960s. And in fact, what that change did under uh, Pierre Trudeau was to um, allow women to get abortions if a panel of doctors at a hospital said that that they could. Uh, and then they had to get them in hospitals. And Morgenthaler's strategy was to open freestanding clinics that expressly violated that, which is how he ended up in court a number of times. Um, people also should be aware that while this was much more extensive in the United States, Canada also has its own history of some firebombings of clinics and attacks on um, medical providers of abortion. Uh, now, some of that's been a long time ago, but as you may know, um, we have some politicians right here in Niagara, where I live and work, um, who've been quite vocal uh, in declaring that Canadians should make abortion, quote, unthinkable, unquote, in our lifetime, who's spoken at anti-abortion rallies. There's, of course, a right to life political party. These may seem small and marginal, but it's very important, I think, for people to kind of keep their eyes open. Um, Canada certainly has, in my region, I know, a number of what are many refer to as kind of fake pregnancy clinics that offer advice to women who are uh, pregnant and who are explicitly anti-abortion. So people should be cautious. And I think we have to assume that this ruling would only embolden people in Canada who are in the anti-abortion movement. I, I I think that's right. And to the extent that there might be communication, uh, across the border between um, political organizations uh, or religious folks in particular, um, folks connected with the Catholic Church, organizations that are that exist in you know many different countries like Knights of Columbus, those um, those anti-abortion forces may certainly um, want to and believe that they can draw strength from from the American movement that's brought us to this point. Professor, I want to ask you this because you are a history professor and you're well aware of this, but the coat hanger imagery has really come back in the last couple months. We've seen more of it. It harkens back to the days of, you know, the 60s and the 70s when people were protesting abortion. And this was sadly a technique that was used. And we're seeing it now, TikTokers, for example, sending coat hangers to the Supreme Court of the United States. What do you think of that image? And is it is it the right image that we should be using or people should be using now? I think it is, unfortunately, an accurate image. Women historically uh, used many different methods when abortion was illegal um, to try to um, practice abortion on themselves. Um, 
we have many uh, documented cases of women who died as a result um, of those botched, unsafe abortions. Abortion is a safe and simple procedure. Uh, and the banning of abortion does not and ban abortion. It'll ban safe abortions. Um, historians who've written about this have talked about what they've referred to as women's dying declarations. Uh, we have stories, for example, from the late 19th century through the mid 20th century in the United States of women who had um, tried to abort their own fetuses through methods such as knitting needles uh, and who ended up in hospitals uh, dying with police officers brought in to interrogate them to try to find out who had helped them, um, had, had, was there an abortionist whose name they would give? Uh, was there a boyfriend whose name uh, they would give so the police could go after him? Um, really just tragic stories that are real stories um, that continued uh, until Roe. And in some cases after, for women who could not find the resources to get abortions. And I'll just note, since Roe, while abortion has been legal, it has been inaccessible for many, many women, particularly women without means, poor women, women of color, uh, who have suffered because of their lack of access to abortion, even though it was technically legal, and who also have resorted to those kinds of very dangerous methods. Absolutely. We appreciate that, Professor, because that's that's the real fear of a lot of people that I've spoken to in Canada is you're, it's out, you're outlawing it now, but that doesn't mean the, pr the practice is going to end. We're just going to go back to some of these dark ages, for lack of a better term, and some of the things that, that people will do to try to get an abortion. Yeah. Yes, I, I think it's not an, it's not overblown rhetoric. It's a real reflection of the desperation uh, of women many of whom already have children um, who simply cannot, um, will not have another child uh, for whatever reason she may choose. And uh, again, it's become enormously difficult for women to get access to abortions, even with Roe being legal, it will be far more so now. Yeah, it sure seems like we've uh, taken a giant step backwards. Uh, Tammy Friedman, Associate Professor of History at Brock University, we certainly uh, thank you for your valuable insight and perspective today. Thanks for being here. Well, I really appreciate it again. And thanks to everyone who's listening. I hope, think we can all learn from this discussion. Well said. Thanks again. For the latest in in-depth features and enterprise journalism from your local writers at Village Media, be sure to check out The Big Read. The Big Read, it's the full story behind the headlines. Look for The Big Read on your favourite Village Media website across Ontario. Welcome 
Welcome back to Inside the Village alongside Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media. I'm Scott Sexsmith. Inside the Village brought to you by True North Mortgage. True North Mortgage, where you'll get uh, great advice and save a pile of cash. Well, Frisco, the hunt is on. Right on. The hunt is on for Bigfoot, and we are joined by the founding member of Trent University's Sasquatch Society, Ryan Willis. Ryan, welcome to Inside the Village. Thanks so much for having me on, guys, and happy to be here. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, Ryan, I'm going to get uh, right to the chase here and ask the serious question. How close are we to finding Sasquatch? Uh, I think we're pretty close, uh, to, you know, to, to answer, honestly. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, really great researchers. I, I think, uh, you know, the general public isn't entirely aware of that, uh, are doing really great work and, and having pretty good results. So um, I think I think we are pretty close. Listen, just to be clear, we just mentioned this off air, but if you have to run because you see something go by your window, feel free, okay? I just want to put that out there. We won't be upset if you have to leave this joke with You me, wouldn't right? be the first uh, guest, Ryan, to bolt on us. So by all means. Yeah, and for way less of a reason. So yeah, yeah that's awesome. Yeah. If you guys get uh, you know, t- tired of uh, talking to me, you can just go, oh, there's a Bigfoot outside, Ryan. I'll, I'll dart. No, no, I have a feeling we're not going to get tired of this. This is great. So have you always been interested in Sasquatch or what, what's, what, what's driving this um yeah i've always been interested from a, a pretty young age and um i, I kind of grew up watching finding bigfoot and uh and i you know as i, I got older i just do more research and, and learn about everything i could uh regarding it so um yeah and it's cool now because we actually uh you know work and uh you know talk with the guys from finding bigfoot i don't know if you've ever seen that show but um yeah it, it's it's really cool uh you know getting into it that way and now you know getting being a an adult doing it and uh, and getting work with those guys. So yeah, it's neat. So Ryan, like uh, uh, UFO sightings, uh, there have been a number documented. Um, it, it does the same hold true with with uh, with Bigfoot or or, or Sasquatch? Are, are there documented sightings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think people don't really realize there's there's thousands and thousands of uh, reports that come in. Um, all the time. I mean, even now, uh, just, you know, we had the article um, in, in Barrie today and, uh, you know, we got flooded with just uh, people saying they've, you know, seen something or they've heard something or, or other people just saying they want to get involved. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, documented uh, reports. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the famous, you know, Patterson-Gimlin footage. That's a, a big one. I think most people have seen. But, um, yeah, and I think the UFO thing is a pretty good thing to compare it to, honestly, yeah. That's great. You mentioned Barry today. Uh, Sean Gibson, our, our great friend over there, Barry today wrote about you and your group. Uh, uh, this is a total compliment on Sean, but if anyone was going to write about Sasquatches and Barry, <laughs> it would, totally be, would Sean. be Sean. And that's a, a huge compliment to Sean. I'm not making fun of him. Uh, so, you know, you get you have a story like that come out and you literally, your your email lights up with people, really? Uh, yeah, no, we actually get, um, yeah, we get a fair bit of witnesses that get in touch with us. And uh, it's, it's just cool to see that... Um, you know, it, it like it obviously really helps us figure out where to go looking in Ontario. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, Ryan, is this part of your schooling? Like, are you in a scientific field or, or what, what, what were you studying at Trent? Um, I'm actually in the Canadian cultural studies. Okay. And so, but, but oh, go ahead. oh, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say most of the club is in science. It's like Trent's a really big science school. So, um, okay. Yeah. So, you launched it this year or last year? Um, yeah. We've kind of been unofficial for like three years or so. And then we kind of got, uh, all separated because of the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, we obviously weren't at school together. So um, when we we came back for this this past year, we uh, registered as an in in official club, and now we're an official university society. And 
uh, yeah, it's been a really good year doing this. You know, that is an often forgotten part of COVID, its impact on the hunt for Sasquatch. It really is. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm glad that you guys are raising awareness of that. That you know, it's something that not doesn't get isn't getting enough attention. But in all seriousness, did uh, do you guys literally get together in a club room there at school and chat about this? How many people show up? Um, yeah, it kind of depends on uh, what type of meeting we do. But um, if we if we're talking with a researcher, we usually just do it over Zoom because a lot of times mm-hmm. they're you know in another part of the world. Um, but yeah, we'll get anywhere you know usually uh like 30 to 40 type of thing and then um in person sometimes like you know 10 15 and then other times um you know we go out just as a uh, smaller groups and go uh do you know field research at night and stuff mm-hmm. can you talk about that i mean what where are you going and and sort of what is there one particular night of field research where you came close or you felt like something significant happened uh, you know, there's nothing I could definitively say uh, was a Sasquatch or, you know, Sasquatch noises and things, right? Uh, it might know, have been Derek. Um... It might have been Derek in the voice. Sorry. Sorry, Ryan. Go ahead. Go ahead. You guys got a friend in the woods or something? Oh, yeah. Is that... yeah that's our, our producer. producer has a great Sasquatch beard. He, he might have made it. Oh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, maybe, we, yeah, maybe we've seen him. Uh... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, yeah, we we just go out to different uh, woodlands around uh, around Peterborough and stuff whenever we can. Um, you know, we probably go out maybe maybe twice a month type of thing, uh, just whenever we're we're able to fit it in between you know assignments and stuff. Because obviously uh, we get pretty pretty flooded with homework, you know, mm-hmm. just being university students. But um, yeah, so we we try to do that. But now that it's summertime, we're uh, obviously going to researching other areas and. Uh, yeah, you know, obviously why we want to hear from so many witnesses and everything um, to, to know where to be looking. And uh, yeah, it really helps us, obviously. Um, so, yeah. Ryan, is there is there a part of the world where um, the most sightings uh, occur, the most reported sightings? Yeah, absolutely. Um, out West is huge, like British Columbia, especially because, uh, you know, obviously um, they, they have a pretty good... Uh, you know, tourist, uh, population, I guess you could say. Sure. Um, so it's, it's a good mix of like people getting out in the woods there and same with Alberta. Um, and then having, you know, really, uh, dense wilderness and, and mountain ranges and things and just, a, you know, a million places for them to hide. And, um, you know, anyone that's been out to, to British Columbia, you know, if you, you go up a mountain and you look around, it's just, uh, never ending mountains and wilderness and things. So, um, that's, that's, uh, definitely a spot where probably the most encounters come out of in the world, but then, um, you know, there's obviously other hot spots uh, and other continents and things. So, um, but yeah, and Oregon too is really good. Uh, the Yukon, Alberta, um, yeah, and yeah, really, uh, West is uh, the hot spot. Sure. So, wooded mountainous uh, terrain is is ideal uh, hunting ground, you might say. Um, l- let me ask you this: what, what what kind of signs do you look for when when you and the crew are out, um, you know, hunting, as it were? Uh, what do you what do you look for? Um. Yeah, we, uh, you know, obviously we kind of start our, our investigation by, you know, looking and seeing if there's any witnesses there or if anyone's seen anything. Um, cause obviously that's a huge indicator, right? Um, and then if there's, oh, sorry, there's, um, <laughs> was that, was that a Sasquatch? What was that? <laughs> no, just, careful, Ryan. Just, it's just my stepbrother, but. <laughs> is, um, your, is your stepbrother part of the, uh, the organization? Uh, no, he, uh, he's a Queens, but, um. Is he a believer? They, uh, uh, I, I don't think so, but maybe, maybe we'll, we'll change that for him. So yeah. start the conversion process, Ryan, work him over. <laughs> Forget what I was going to ask. Uh, my stepbrother walked in too, Ryan. Sorry about that. Um, 
what's the reaction been around campus? I mean, well, there's obviously you have a pretty you have a decent membership in the club, but what are what are people saying? Do you guys have jackets or t-shirts you walk around with? Um, we actually do have some uh, merchandise that's uh, come out recently that that people can buy. So we're hoping to raise some money to uh, you know get research gear and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh man, this is still going. <laughs> He's just looking for some camera time, Ryan. Yeah. See if he see if he wants to come on the show. We'll see what he's doing at Queens. Yeah. We we (laughs) tell you one thing, he's not hunting Sasquatch. I was gonna say. Uh sorry, is he still there or is he gone? Um, they're, they're upstairs. All right. That's uh, okay. Echo, don't worry. Don't, don't, yeah, don't worry about the noise. It adds to the intrigue. It adds to the mystery Absolutely. that there's some yeah. noises coming yeah. from somewhere else. So, so Ryan, what's, what's the long-term goal here? I mean, you obviously want to keep going with this as a career or not or as something you, a passion you want to keep pursuing, even though you're done. Cause you graduated, right? Um, I've technically graduated, but I'm going back for a certificate program. So I'm not done there yet, but okay. uh, I graduated my under grad part of the degree right so what's the long-term goal here with the the sasquatch society and your passion for sasquatch yeah so um you know for the club as a whole uh obviously you know just keep it going uh, a trend and there's um you know obviously a ton of people involved in now uh that you know are passionate about it and and really love it so uh i think it'll keep going for a long time and uh, i think it'll really grow in the school especially this coming year too we have a lot planned to really grow it within the school mm-hmm. it's kind of funny i think i think we did a better job um, by the end of the year of kind of growing it outside of the school than inside of the school yeah which i think is pretty funny because you'd think like we were you know like global news and cbc <laughs> wanted to do and, like toronto sun wanted to do stories on us and like i emailed the school paper i'm like hey could you guys do something like or write a story about us so students know about this and can check it out and i, I never heard back from them. <laughs> but it, but it's like and then i'm getting like messages from like like evan solomon and stuff saying they want to like have us on at like prime time and, and I can't, I can't even get off. in the school paper. It was, it's, it's insane. Hey, but, you got on Inside the Village, brother. That doesn't yeah, get bigger yeah, than here this. too. You see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the number one thing. But I, yeah, and I can't get in the school paper. It's crazy. Listen, you know. <laughs> listen Evan Solomon, if you're going to go on his show, you got to make sure your bro- your stepbrother's not around because I don't know if he might be getting a little more upset with the background noise. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're a little more tolerant. Yeah. No, but seriously, like, I mean, is this, obviously you're very passionate about this and there are people who do this. Uh, it's their living. Is this something you want to be able to do for the rest of your life? Um, yeah, I'd love to. Like, I'm super, super passionate about it, obviously, which is, um, you know, why why I started all this. Um, and, and I'd love to do everything I can with it. And, uh, yeah, really, you know, I, I don't exactly know what, what you do to, like, you know, make it your your whole life. You know what I mean? Because, um, you know, most Sasquatch researchers have, like, another job or things or they're just retired and do it full-time now that they're retired. But, like... Um, yeah, but I, I want to do everything I can with it, pretty much. Ryan, now we've heard that there's a, a TV pilot uh, in the making. What's uh, what's that all about? Uh, yeah, so it's pretty cool. We got asked to do a TV pilot, and um, yeah, so so for the pilot, we we want to talk to witnesses, uh, you know, really really all over the world. But um, you know, we're filming in Ontario, so we we want to get the most compelling witnesses in Ontario and uh, talk to them for the pilot. So um, you know, if you're a Sasquatch witness and uh, you know, you had a really cool encounter, just any type of encounter, uh, you know, please get in touch. And, uh, yeah, we, we really want to hear from you. Who, who's doing the pilot, Ryan? Uh, it's a smaller production company in Peterborough, but, um, you know, they heard about us and were interested in doing it. And, uh, yeah, so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. 
And what's the easiest way for people to get in touch if they have witnessed something? Um, yeah, everything we're doing, um, even uh, videos with researchers and stuff and talks, if people want to check that out, you can find everything we're doing at sasquatchuniversity.com. All right. um, so, yeah, if you want to get in touch with us, that's the best place to go. That domain was available? Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I thought someone would have scooped that up in the early days of the internet. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, you know, I know we're joking around, but I love nothing more than somebody who's passionate about what they do. So yeah. I appreciate that. I know Scott does as well. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. And you got to do me a favor. If you do find this Sasquatch in Barrie, you got to give Sean the, 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 the scoop first, okay? Absolutely. Yeah, no, we will. Awesome. We will. All right, Ryan Willis, the founding member of Trent University's Sasquatch Society Ryan, good luck with everything, man. Appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. And we're back to wrap another episode of Inside the Village with Frisco and Scott right after this. Reporters, editors, and journalists who go the extra mile to get the story and get it right. Go behind the scenes with those who cover the stories that matter most to you and your community. Look for it in the Village Features section of your favorite Village Media website across Ontario. And we're back to wrap on Inside the Village alongside Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media. I'm Scott Sexsmith. Uh, we started the show with a, a, a serious topic, Professor uh, Tammy Friedman uh, at Brock University uh, discussing uh, Roe v. Wade, and, and she certainly provided um, some intelligent context uh, real, and insight. Real powerful context, and I think that's what we really need at this moment, right? There's a lot of anger and frustration, rightfully so, about that ruling, and we need people who understand the history, who understand uh, where this came from, how we got to this point, right? And I think that's true for so many important issues in the world today. We yeah. need people who understand how we got here. And uh, on the lighter side of things, uh, Ryan Willis, the uh, founding member of Trent University's Sasquatch Society. I still can't believe the poor kid can't get in his own newspaper, but he's got Evan Solomon chasing him down for an interview. <laughs> That's the best part. And you know, when there are moments when we read the news and we just think that the world is doomed, right? That, that there's so much negativity out there and so many things that happen that just make you wonder why. And then you see a kid like that who's just so damn passionate about what he's yeah. doing and uh, you think, okay, maybe the world's going to be okay. You know, maybe there's some good people out there. So I would love nothing more than to read a headline <laughs> that said this guy <laughs> found Bigfoot. I'd be the happiest guy, man. Yeah, that would be great. Good luck to, uh, to Ryan Willis. All right, that uh, puts the wraps on another episode of uh, Inside the Village. What do you say we uh, do it again next week? Right on. I'll all be right. here. InsideTheVillage.ca is where you can find all episodes, of course, uh, across the Village Media Network and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. For Michael Friscalanti, Editor-in-Chief here at Village Media, I'm Scott Sexsmith. We'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to Inside the Village. 